right? So when I say that I'm worthy of love, it doesn't matter whether my wife is loving me or not. Am I walking around telling myself I'm worthy of love and loving myself also? You know what I mean? Right. So like there is that piece because my wife will never be able to love me enough for me to feel validated all the time. Right. She's not capable of it. No. You know what I mean? My mother can't do that. Not that my mother wants to do that. You know what I mean? Like my father can't do that. You can't do it. Menachem can't do it. None of you can love me enough where I feel whole, you know? But that story from the Kutzker, right? right. There's nothing more whole than a broken heart, right? If I could like look at my broken heart and say, this is the wholest it could be. And I love that about myself. Like, right. okay, so then fine. Hello Shine. and welcome to the Brainstorm Podcast. And now your host, Sonny Perlman. Shmaya. Hey. Okay. I will tell the... Uh, Thank you for coming. It's a real pleasure. I'm very, very excited. For a long time, I wanted to do this podcast. It's a little weird timing because for one of the people who – come on up. You are one of the people that I have the most fun and laughter with. Yeah. Our levity is awesome. And I was really excited about this podcast because I wanted to laugh and talk about our crazy career together, which we had a lot of so far. Um. And we're at a weird time. Yeah. So we're going to have to find some sort of balance. Yeah. Hey, I hope we do. First of all, put it on your mic for a second. Yeah. I must ask you <laughs> a question. <laughs> Could you just get this out of the way? Because if anybody knows you, well, why do you why do you have a mustache? Yeah. So on, on Friday of last week, I had a beard that was like a foot long. Right. And uh, like 10 minutes before Shabbat, I shaved it off and left the mustache. And the reason I did that was because I saw that all the people in Israel who are on Miluim, or a lot of them, were growing out their mustache or shaving their beards and just leaving their mustache. And I felt like some measure of like solidarity, like it's a fun thing to do, but also like... It's like a solidarity thing. And we are heading into No Shave November or Movember, whatever people call it. Right. And I figured maybe I could like gain some traction and get people to do something like this. It would be nice if they did that. Because it doesn't really mean anything. I also could tell you that since you walked in in the house, we're in the sober living house. So you've tried to convince at least six people (laughs) to do this. I've gotten a few people. I realize you're on shlichas. I'm on shlichas for it. Yeah. 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 I'm on shlichas for it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get awareness out, trying to get people to do it. Yeah. Has it worked at all? Yeah. A few people have done it. Um, I wrote up a whole post and I sent it out to different like WhatsApp groups. I posted it on my status and I wrote it in such a way that it looks like, someone challenged me to do it and I did it and now I'm posting it for other people to do it. Oh, but really I just generated the whole thing. <laughs> um, you did like the, the ice bucket challenge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yako Rabinowitz for. Yeah. Telling me to do this. And I now challenge these challenge. five other people. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And I've gotten a few people to do it. And I think that, um, I think that number one, like it's, you were talking on the Meaningful People podcast that there are people that are hiding their Jewishness or uh, one of the hosts was talking about it. They're taking off their kippah. They're taking their mezuzahs down. Like people are doing those type of things. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm putting on my biggest kippah. 
growing out my mustache like the reservists are doing, like the people in Miluim are doing. And like, that's what I'm doing. Right. Right. And if you could do it too, like, go ahead and do it. You know? Mm-hmm. So like, that's like, that's what I'm doing. Okay. So you segued us right in. We're going to get serious now. Yeah. For the people who watch this that take it seriously. Um, let's talk about the Meaningful People podcast, which I did last week. Right. And you watched? You watched the whole thing or just clips? Um, I watched the first hour of it. It's oh, wow. an hour and 20 minutes, I think. It went, it went long. Yeah, yeah. I watched the first hour. I'm still watching it. I'm not done with it. All right. So what I wanted to ask you, yeah. so what people don't know necessarily who, who haven't yet bumped into all your stuff, you have a podcast yourself or say what your podcast is so we don't forget. I have a podcast. It's called Unconsciously. Unconsciously. And the purpose of the podcast is to bring on regular people to share their stories about themselves, mostly their day-to-day life, and to try and pull out, like, powerful messages from day-to-day living. Like, we just had someone on who was just talking about the fact that they fell in love with yoga and they want to be a yoga teacher. You know what I mean? Just, like, a regular person. And we were able to, like, pull out, like, what does yoga give to you? Like, whatever, just pulling out messages. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorrel. Sorrel. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. We just had Sorrel. It's awesome. She just helped all the guys do yoga. Do you know that? Yeah. Did she mention that? She did not mention it on the pod. No, I I mean, that's, that's like some, one of the things that we like to do. We just had someone on who's like just regular job, like a regular person, someone that does insurance. And we're just talking about like how to show up. How do you sell people insurance that you don't feel like you're trying to like take advantage of them? You're actually trying to provide a service. And like, do you feel like you're doing good in the world? And like, whatever, just like regular people pulling out powerful messages to provide to people because everybody inherently has value. Right. doesn't need to be a world-class speaker. Right. So I'm trying to provide a platform for people that don't have any to like, shine some light into the world okay well i'm a regular person i never got invited but where, where, where you have a there? you have a platform i'm on your platform oh. <laughs> you say i don't need a platform uh, you, ha- you i'm on your platform right fine, now fine fine okay i do have a platform you're right but the <laughs> what i wanted to say is that what people don't know if they haven't yet gone to the unconsciously Consciously? Unconsciously. Unconsciously. You don't want to say that wrong. Unconsciously podcast or don't know you from all the stuff you do. You've been doing this work for a while. Yeah. Matter of fact, I know almost exactly how long as you do this work because your first job in this field was with me. Yeah. If you took better paperwork, you could probably figure out the exact day. <laughs> huh, he's coming out with shots right <laughs> off the bat. What do you mean? I'm saying I'm saying there's no documentation of the day I first started. I can tell you exactly the day. Yeah. I can't. I can't, but it was how long was it? Eight years ago? What are we talking? Eight and a half years ago. Eight and a half years ago. Yeah. Dude, I, I cannot believe I hired you, but I am so grateful that I did. <laughs> That's what something I want to say. Yeah. I remember when I hired you, you were you were like Fresh off the boat, like yeah, it was a wild cra- man, crazy hire, great, great, ne- uh, g- grateful dead, like you know, first week of the job, you're like, I'm going I got to go to Chicago for a month to yeah. follow the dead, and I'm like, I don't think that's part of this job at all. <laughs> yeah, so you were you, but you were uh, you were the heartbeat of that the last sober living house. Yeah, I mean, that was that was like that really taught me a lot. Tremendous amount. Nice. I want to hear all about what I taught you. 
One of the most impactful things that working yeah. at the sober house taught me, I remember there was one person who was in the house who I had a very, very difficult time with. And for a couple months I was really struggling and we would have staff meetings and we would talk about it and we would try to game plan around it. Right. Because as anyone who listens to you knows the goal is to love unconditionally. Now I was having a very hard time with this one individual loving them unconditionally. And you turned to me at one staff meeting and you said, who does he remind you of already? Like, who are you fighting with? It's not him. Who are you fighting with? That's like, who does he represent? And as much as like I've learned about transference and like learning about, you know, practical skills and trying to help people, the moment where you turned to me and you said that, everything kind of like awoken inside of me. Like, oh, he's a representation of someone that I'm like resentful at, that I'm battling. And he's actually not that person. And like, I need to like let that go and like see him as an individual. And from the time I did that, not only did my experience with him get better, but his experience of being in the sober house, living in sobriety, engaging in recovery got better. Right. So like, that was like a very, very powerful thing that I learned right That's there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay. I, I like that also. Well, that's that's a thing that uh, our staff meetings are wild. I mention a lot on the podcast because it's hard to explain, you know, us sitting around like trying to figure out how to love people. Yeah. But like it's not – most people like they give lip service to loving. This is our methodology. Yeah. So how do you – like the questions guys ask, well, like, how do you love someone you don't love? And like I have this very simple trick that I that that I that I try myself and some other people try is like just allow them to talk about their what they're in pain about yeah. for about ten minutes. And it's really hard not to love them. That's what that's that's but we, we, we're like constantly coming up with new methodologies and we're doing this for eight years, these sober houses. Well, each individual kind of requires a different type of love depending on whatever their individual hurt is that's preventing right, them from receiving it. Right, that's the point I was saying yeah. is that it's constantly changing. Yeah. And you're doing the work and you're seeing this This is not like uh, something you could write down like, oh, you got to do it this way and that's how it works. It's constantly evolving with each person, with each, with the different cultures and personalities that we keep encountering. Yeah. What does it mean to love? So that's cool. But anyway, you went on to, after working with me for a while, you started working at the living room. Yeah. Which is where you are now. Which is where I am now. now I've had Menachem on, but could you like explain first what the living room is, and then I'll, then we'll get into some talking about it. The living room is a clubhouse for young Jewish people who are either in recovery or seeking recovery um, to help them engage in long-term sustainable recovery building fellowship and community and sense of family. Um, so that way they could receive, it helps build that Kaylee to receive love and community and fellowship. which So many people are lacking who are walking through the door. Um, we're not like a direct recovery service. Like we want people to engage in traditional 12 step recovery. We're there more to provide a safe place to, be Jewish in recovery, to build a Jewish fellowship in recovery. So much of the trauma that people experience are directly related to their Judaism and to have a safe place to come back to in the community to like really own that part of themselves. You know, 
we're a big believer that if you want to engage in recovery and you have run away from the community to get recovery and you never find a way to comfortably come back, the recovery is never going to be on strong ground. It's just, it's never going to work because you're still running away from something. So we try to provide that space where you could come back to and like re-engage at whatever level you're comfortable with. Right. We were talking about before because it's like it's we were and you were mentioning that you get this super benefit of actually following people as they're doing well. Yeah, for years because the living room, as far as I know, is like the longest, like it's the longest case study of all time. Like it's you could you could be there for ten, fifteen years in recovery and watch them grow and have families and change and have new careers. And I mean, you seen you see it all. Most places. They come and go. Yeah. So that's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, the most recent retreat we've had, there were as many children of TLR members on the retreat as the first retreat when I started working at the living room were on. Meaning to say that we had maybe 80 TLR people on the first retreat right. that I was there working on. And we had 80 children of TLR members on this current retreat. So right. not only have those people stayed sober, but they've gone on to have kids and families and they're there. They're on the, they're on the Shabbaton. They're on the retreat. And I get to see them building a life, which is an unbelievably gratifying piece of the work that I think a lot of people who are in the field don't really get to see often. Yeah. They work with someone and then they move on to someone else. And also we've like made everything very clinical and therefore you're only a little piece of someone's life it's not community like we're always fighting well i'm always fighting for the community idea you guys have been doing this for a really long time as a matter of fact were you on the first living room retreat like ever so something like that there's a good story about yeah yeah yeah, i forgot what the story so so the first living room shabbaton was at your house. Davening was at your house. Right. My my mother's house in Farakaway. Yeah your mother's house in Farakaway. And I was a child and my um, this is a really long time. This is twenty something years ago. I mean, let's maybe go back. Years. Let's go back nineteen years, probably right. nineteen twenty years. I'm thirty one, so maybe I was eleven. And my older brother Moshe Davin for the Ahmed for that minion that was at your house, um, and he was fourteen. And um, and so I, me, my, me, my father, and my brother came to like my father was coming to help provide the minion, and I was there. Yeah. It's wild. It is crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. Yeah. That was such a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really a wild thing. Right. It's really, really wild. Okay. So back to the Meaningful Minute, Meaningful yeah. People podcast. Yeah. Because I wanted to ask you, I talked about a lot of things on the podcast. Now, if you want to, you got to go check out that podcast on Meaningful Minute. It's worthwhile to check it out. Sonny delivers some very powerful messages. It's very worthwhile to okay. check it out. Thank you. Yeah. Sometimes I like being, I mean, I almost always like being interviewed more than interviewing. So it's easier. It's easier. And I think that little narcissistic part of me is like, I get to talk about my stuff. Right. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> um, the question, the question I have for you is, because my philosophy sometimes bumps up against other philosophies. Yeah. So really my question I have for you is like, were there things that I said that you were like, eh, I love Sonny, but I don't really agree with that or 
something that did resonate. I'm curious if there was. So I, I want to tell you something. The people I was the most nervous about watching this podcast were like you and Menachem. Right. I will just tell you that. I'm like, I'm coming out of the closet about some of these topics that I kind of don't always yell from the rooftops. And I was saying some of that stuff. Um, I got a lot more. Right. It's much more. You yeah. know most of it. But I was curious if you have uh, thoughts on that. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me in the podcast that really I kind of have a different approach to, although I definitely agree in the philosophy of is where does the patch come in the gas tank, right? Okay. Sonny was giving, uh, for the audience, Sonny was giving uh, the muscle that um, there's level one, level two, right? The level two is the car. Level one is the gas tank. The gas tank needs to be filled with love. If someone's not making their bed, it's because they don't love themselves enough to make their bed. If they're not going to work, it's because they don't love themselves enough to go to work. And really where that comes from is a sense of trauma, that that's what damaged their ability to intake love. And one, some of the work that we do is to patch the holes in the gas tank. Right. Right. And, um, I think that the patch can't come externally. I think the patch has to come internally. I don't think you're capable or I'm capable of patching someone else's gas tank. I think that I could model me patching my own gas tank for people at times one of the things that the living room model allows me to do is I get to model my own life for people. I get to model my own dysfunction. You get to be very vulnerable with the people in the sober house. You get to be very vulnerable on the podcast. People get to see you patching your own gas tank. And I, th and I don't think that it's me showing up for the other person that matters as much as me visibly showing up for myself. So how would you go about patching yourself? How would we do that? So, because I was saying, I'll just, I'll just, my idea with the patch is, first of all, I believe that almost the whole first part is not on the person. So that's your, you're disagreeing with like a, a very fundamental part of my belief, which is that step one is like almost completely on us as a community, like the so, first part. So here's where I would, here's what, where I, what I would say to that. They showed up. That's it. And the fact that they showed up to really introduce them to that was like, you decided to come here. You're showing up for yourself. You're beginning to patch that. And once someone could, if I could convey that enough where they believe that mm. and model for myself how showing up for myself actually makes a difference. So I'm telling them that they showed up for themselves. I'm showing them that I show up for myself, right? Right that hopefully will translate that they're like, I did show up for myself today. I did show up. I do want to be at the living room. I did sign up to come to sober living. I am waking up in the morning and maybe I didn't do my best, but I want to do my best. Right. And like, if they could believe that that's the beginning of them beginning to patch the gas tank. So okay. it, so it's not so much that like the onus is on them. They, the onus is on them. They already took the first step. They already did. Just help them realize that. Right. So what I was saying, and I like I like it. I'm not, I disagree yeah. with it, but I like it. <laughs> I just, just want to explain that what I was saying is patches are created by the challenges that they give us. 
Yeah. I mean, when they say, when they do something terrible and we still say, we still love you, that's where we patch their irrational, their, I wouldn't say irrational. I think it's very rational. Their belief that they are unworthy. We have to change that belief. So in order to do that, they have to challenge because they believe that when they do, when you see the ugly them inside, you're never going to love them. So it's only conditional. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't ex- right. like directly disagree with that. You just think you could, uh, the person could do a lot more to I th- help with the patching. I th- I think that if I don't provide unconditional love to them, there's no shot. If I am providing unconditional love for them, then hopefully they could actually say, "Oh, actually, I am worthy of love," and then they patch it themselves, right? So I do need to model that for them in talking to them, but also they have to learn the behavior somewhere and then apply it to themselves. I could work with somebody, but if they don't have a visual of what it means to love themselves, I could try to tell them they're worthy of love from today till tomorrow. There are guys that we've both worked with mm. who, no matter how much we showed up for them, um, thinking of like one guy in particular who was a tremendous pathological liar who had uh, mysterious, mysterious illnesses all the time. I love that guy. I love him too. <laughs> I love him so much. And he, we, I, I don't think anyone failed in showing him unconditional love in the environment. Right. I don't know if he ever believed it though. Right. I don't right. know if, I, I don't know if he ever saw a model of loving himself in any of us that he could then apply to himself. Right. And so I think a lot of the work that I get to do now in the living room um, and even with the guys that are here in the sober house, I get to do with them also, which is really great that they come to the living room and we get to work hand in hand. So I get to model for them what it means to show up for yourself. Right. Like, for example, and this is like another, you know, transition to something we wanted to talk about. I've been in tremendous fear with everything that's going on in Eretz Yisrael. Right. Right. Tremendous fear. And so, what do you mean? What do you mean, fear? I, I understand, but I have a couple of different fears. No, no, no. There's a lot of different fears. Right. Um, in the early days of this war, in the early days after Simchas Torah, um, a lot of those fears were unnamed. Right. I didn't know exactly what I was afraid of. There's a general anxiety. Right. Right. And I was able to model for the people that were coming what I do with that how I show up for myself. I, wrote an, I, I shared explicitly with people the fears that I was having and how I dealt with it and the people I spoke to. And then I wanted to share with other people how I overcame that and how I'm able to be present and show up for my life in spite of fear. And so then people saw like, oh, here's someone who wants to show up for their own life. They want to not, be sucked into the hole of isolation and depression that fear can create. And this is how they did it. Right. And if they, and if they feel safe enough in the environment that we create, they could then directly learn how to do that and apply it to themselves, which by the way, they do want to do that. And I know they want to do that because they've showed up. Right. It's interesting. Cause I had a very um, opposite experience. Yeah. Usually I'm that guy. Right. Usually I'm the rock. I mean, in the organization and like my staff, my family, you know, like I really, you know, honing the like the ability to be strong. And, you know, like you're saying, you know, if I had um, to epitomize you, it's um, 
duck feathers. Water rolls right off. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, okay, we keep moving. We keep moving. We keep moving. There's no such thing as a crisis. There's no such thing as a crisis. There's no such thing as a crisis, which is frustrating for everybody. But yeah. It's like, oh, but he's dying. Right. <laughs> I know, but, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, <coughs> this week after, so the killings and all that horror story was horrific. It was horrific. My, I went in, then when I started hearing the support that the world was giving to those horror stories, like, Hamas, I got, like, I got that. And by the way, I, I'm not on the, on board that we're just fighting Hamas. Hamas is an outgrowth of the Palestinian situation. So everybody's like, we're fighting Hamas, you're not the Palestinians. The Palestinians were fighting us way before Hamas. So I will put that out there right. and, uh, probably not make it into a, a short because I'll get so much hate. Right. But what I'm saying is um, my when I started seeing how much the world was supporting um, the outright anti-Semitic behaviors that were happening and the, the, the horror, it was a pogrom. And I watched it and I realized like, I'll say this, my wife always gets nervous. Like, oh, I'm, I'm nervous. What? What what are we gonna do? This is anti-Semitism. What are we gonna do? Well, we should go. We should move to Israel. You know, like she she gets more nervous. And I say, I said to her historically because I study a ton of history historically. Until until it is state sponsored or state supported, I'm right. not worried. Like when it, in it, you know in in Germany it became state sponsored, that became terrifying. Oh my god! Now they are supporting anti-Semitism. That's always when it got really bad. And this feeling that everybody was supporting it gave me such a fear. Like I've never feared in my life. I actually don't feel fear a lot. Like fear is not like one of my big emotions. And it completely overwhelmed me to the point where I completely fell apart. Um, and it was very noticeable. I mean, I have bad emotion stuff, but I, you know, like at work and stuff. And even at home, like you don't necessarily see it all the time. But I literally visibly fell apart. Like yesterday, they, they the staff here had a meeting, and part of the meeting was to talk about how how you know to decide if if Sonny has to like get his act together or not. You right. know what I mean? I, <laughs> I secretly know that I was not at that meeting, um, but they were determining whether they could handle uh, uh, me falling apart. Right. It was really really hard for them. So you're talking about like modeling. And I maybe that's a different type of model. No, like by the way, out to fall apart. I I mean, it was so hard. It was I, so hard. By the way, this is modeling also. What's like, modeling? Like I'm in fear today, and like I can't really show up, and that's okay. That's also that's okay. I'm, I'm like as meaning. That's another thing you taught me. By the way, mm. uh, let's, all right, let's, let's go. Let's circle back. I got I, very very serious. <laughs> you make it a little less serious. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, I remember we. I mean, of course you remember the story. One of the very first holidays that I was working in the sober house was Shavuos. Mm. And um, we decided we were going to do a camping trip over Shavuos with the guys. Right? Right. And some of the guys picked up and went back to the house by themselves in the middle of the camping trip. And I was such a funny thing to say from this vantage point, but I felt so defeated by that. I was like, so maybe, maybe I don't have the ability to be a leader in the way that like you needed me to be like, I can't keep the guys from doing 
what they're not supposed to be doing. I can't get the guys to do the thing they're supposed to be doing. And I felt like so defeated in that. And I remember I went to your house to talk to you about it. And you said, um, Shmaya, you don't need to pretend to be in charge. You are in charge. If people don't listen, then that's okay. But you are in charge. And while that lesson, those words don't directly translate to like what we were just talking about, the message that like I've been pulling out of that over the years is like wherever I am is okay. Right? Like I already am Shmaya. So like right. like whether that translates into meaningful action for other people or not, it's okay. It's okay. Right. And I can model that also to people because, and this is another thing that you didn't say on the meaningful people podcast, but I was, why am I worthy of love? Because I exist. I am worthy of love. Right. And it doesn't matter whether you tell me that or not. I have to believe it by myself. And the truth is no one else could fill up my gas tank. My wife can't fill up my gas tank. She could like, she could like put like a quarter of a tank in, you know what I mean? My boss can't fill up my gas tank. My clients can't fill up my gas tank. I can fill up my gas tank. God could fill up my gas tank. You know what I mean? I, I, well, I, essentially filling the gas tank is the change of belief from worthy, from unworthy to worthy. to worthy. Right, right, right. And when, so it's like, if you understand you're in charge. Yes, but you're, also. You're in charge. I'm in charge just because that's my position. Like it's, Right. You can't mess with that just because you don't listen to me. Right. It's, I'm still in charge. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. It's a core belief. And and even if and even if I believe that logically, but in my heart, that's not translating into a feeling of security in my position in life. So then it doesn't matter whether I believe it logically or not, right? I have to like act with that belief. Right. So when I say that I'm worthy of love, it doesn't matter whether my wife is loving me or not. Am I walking around telling myself I'm worthy of love and loving myself also? You know what I mean? Right. So like there is that piece because my wife will never be able to love me enough for me to feel validated all the time. Right. She's not capable of it. No. You know what I mean? My mother can't do that. Not that my mother wants to do that. You know what I mean? Like my father can't do that. You can't do it. Menachem can't do it. None of you can love me enough where I feel whole, you know? But that story from the Kutzker, right? right. There's nothing more whole than a broken heart, right? If I could like look at my broken heart and say, this is the wholest it could be. And I love that about myself. Like, right. so, okay. So then fine. Shine. I think it's an important thing with parenting also. You didn't talk about being a father yet. This very excited that you're a father. You're By the way, a long time. I'm, I'm not a long time. 16 months. That's 17 it? months. Yeah. I just have two in that time period. So it feels like a long time. What do they call it? Irish twins? Irish twins. They're 10 and a half months apart. Shmaya, relax, dude. Settle down. I know you like being a father. You don't have to be so much of a you, you didn't see the memes going around? The best revenge is making Jewish babies. It is. that. So I called my wife. You want to make revenge? Should we have some revenge? Oh, I did see that revenge. 
That was such a funny meme. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Meme. I, uh, I texted her before. You want to make some revenge? Like, <laughs> let's go. Let's have some revenge. Let's have some revenge. Well, <laughs> I think that's a big part of it. And you're here early in the parenting thing, but part a big part of parenting is just understanding that you're in charge. Yeah. You know, a lot of parents are just like, I don't know what to do. So they give up the reins of being in charge. doesn't mean it to be mean. Right. It just, it gives a lot of safety to, to the people around. If you're like, if you, if they know someone's in charge, that person can make mistakes. Like I said, I fell apart. It was hard for the, for the group. I think in general, it was like, what, what's happening to the person in charge. And maybe I stopped feeling like I was in charge for a week. And Maybe that was the problem. Maybe that's what the uncomfortability of the staff was. Yeah. I know I'm getting there, but the Israel situation has has completely floored me in a way that I've never been floored before. And it's it's tainting everything. I love humor and laughter and everything I'm doing just feels like bleak. I'm like, how are we laughing in this situation? How are we how are we able to function? I'm going to get very serious. My sister, my sister was just on TV in Israel last night, which was cool because I, I mean, I had to stay up till three in the morning to see her, which probably was a very irresponsible move, but I really wanted to see her live on, on TV in Israel. And she's talking. I only understood about half of it because it was Hebrew. Right. But she was talking about like she was, she's doing Tahara on the, on, on the dead bodies. That's what she was doing. Yeah. And I saw her make the person running the show. It was like a morning show. Start crying. Yeah. Like I never seen anybody start crying. I mean, like the guy in the morning show who was all chipper. The woman didn't. She 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 was she was rock solid. The guy <laughs> fell apart. He was just hearing the story. Like it was so painful. Um, but I think the most Jewish thing in the world is to laugh. So maybe we'll get there. But I'm feeling better this week. I'm happy you're feeling better this week. And I, by the way, you should know that, like, I also, I was just talking to Gittel Fulman about this. Um, Gittel is the uh, clinical director of the living room, um, and she does supervision with the staff for the audience. Um, I was just talking to Gittel about this in supervision, that I was doing a very good job of not, like, being on social media the first two and a half weeks after this whole thing went down in in the south and i and i was not seeing uh the backlash of the world i wasn't seeing it you know what i mean i i was not just wasn't what i was seeing and then on starting on wednesday of last week until last night i fell into a hole of social media that really pulled me away from being able to like exist or be present and I only realized that I was in that hole because last night I fell asleep with talking points in my head. And I woke up this morning with talking points in my head about like what my, like if I had a massive platform, what would my response be to, to talking to imaginary internet people? You know what I mean? The, with the exhaustion of like, of like needing to explain the Jewish experience, you know what I mean? The, and, and like, I don't want to feel like I need to explain the Jewish experience. I want right. to just be able to be Jewish. You know just what I mean? And like, I don't want to have to feel like I need to explain that to people. I don't want to like talk to like the non-Jews that I'm friends with. I need to explain to them how I feel and like why it's valid, you know? And then I don't want to, I definitely don't want to talk to internet strangers and like defend Israel and the Jewish people. Mm. Right. And like social media. And by the way, 
I've never felt like I needed to do that before. That is not who I am as a person, but something about the social media hole that I fell into from Wednesday of last week until last night twisted my mind to be on the defensive. Right. You know what I mean? Thank God I realized that. And I'm like trying to like pull myself away from that social media hole. But like, I'm going to go to the living room tonight. Right. And I'm going to talk to people and I'm going to share this stuff with them also. You know what I mean? And like, I'm not going to experience that in isolation. I'm not going to experience these feelings in isolation. I'm not going to experience it and let that detract from showing up for the people that I need to love unconditionally. Right. I'm going to invite them into the process, not in like a codependent or in like a reverse transference way. I think that's so special that you have that. Meaning (laughs) most people... They're going about their lives. They don't get a place to talk about it and share about it. And, you know, like, you know, they yell about it. You know, I don't know. They talk about it a second, but on the phone or something with somebody. But, like, to actually sit and share how you're feeling, how you're processing. Let's get back to, like, your work for a second. Let's get back to your work for a second. Like, working with this community in recovery. I want to ask you some questions about 12 steps and stuff like that. But like, what have you like, when you're looking at the the difference between, let's say people in recovery, people outside of recovery, like what are the, what are the, what are the things you could point out that are really like incredible about the community you're working with or the, the work you're doing? Like what, what are you finding that, that is, that is these special problems with it? I mean, tell me a little bit about it. Very wide question. It is a very wide question. Before I answer the question, I just want to address something that you were saying a second ago, how lucky I am that I have this community to be able to model what I'm going through for other people, you know? But I think everyone has that on some level. If you're an Orthodox Jew, right? You could grab someone at Kiddush and talk to them. Right. You have... If you're my age, you're probably married. You probably have kids. You have siblings. We could come from big family units. And no one, there's no like hierarchy to modeling or sharing and being vulnerable. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing stopping someone from jumping on their family WhatsApp group and being honest with their family about how they fear. Not from a place. Are you kidding me? Not from a place. One second. <laughs> nothing stopping. Not from, from being a pl- vulnerable to that family. I mean, okay, no. Which by the way, right, 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 right. Okay, fine. Shine. You're you're saying good. Some people can't That's, do that. Sometimes it's the scariest group you could be on. Yeah, but I will say this, right? And I was gonna get to like the second half of that in yeah. a second. There are people oh who, because of trauma and other things, they are limited in that regard. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but for the average person, there's nothing saying like, I'm afraid, but I'm still trying to show up for my life today. Or like social media has really gotten me down today. And like, I'm trying to battle against it so I can like live present in the world. Now, not everybody's actually trying to do that, Mm -hmm. but like if someone is of the mindset where they would like to model behavior or they would like to, start to identify within themselves what they're working on through the lens of sharing that to other people. Like you have a platform and if you don't have a platform, you could come on unconsciously and I'll give you a platform. You know what I mean? Like people do have that on another note. Um, 
you had the Olivers on a while ago. Yeah. And I'm trying with to get with them to create something, a clubhouse for mental health for, that's based on Hillel of Rockland, similar to what we do at the living room. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I would really like to like try and like take whatever part of this model can be transferred to non-addicts and like give it to Hillel of Rockland for their membership. I, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of times either uh, the Rebbitson or the rabbi have called me and say, okay, Shmaya, have this guy. He's not an addict, but you know what I mean? And like, there's been too many times where I said, I'm sorry, rabbi, he can't come to the living room. It's been too many times where like my heart has broken in that way for me to like, I will not turn tell around. you that I have a, exactly the same experience with here. Yeah. Being the sober living. I, I constantly getting phone calls. This guy's just not moving. He's 30 years old and he's just struggling. And we call it mental health, but it's some form of failure to launch. Like there's something that's not working. and They're broken. And where are they going to find the community? Right. What you're saying? Yeah. So Hill of Rockland is doing a fantastic job of creating community for people, but they still are encountering the struggle of like, there is no clinical aspect to the community that they're creating. Right. So they got all the community stuff down, but there's no, there's no avenue for translating that into skills, right? They're, they're filling the car with gas, right? They got that. They don't know how to get the car working other than that. You know what I mean? For some people in particular, right? So, right. The Schustermans, Schustermans are doing something in Peabody, Peabody, Peabody. It's cool. It's they, <laughs> the Schlichem of, Peabody. I think they say Peabody, Massachusetts. Whatever. And they're doing, they're copying the model of Mavakshim Anonymous, which is what we created here. And there's there's no buy-in. That's an interesting thing. It's like in the 12 steps, you need some sort of buy-in. Like, why am I here? So the buy-in that I is they are members of Hillel. So if you're a member of Hillel, you get to share. You get the what opportunity. Is the goal? Where are we going? Well, I mean, I would hope that they're, I mean, one of the things that I need to talk to them about and I mean, we, we've only been at the beginning of this process. There needs to be someone on staff there who can like run a meeting, right? Uh, of some kind where they're presenting an idea and people could share on that topic, but then they're also sharing gratitude, right? Very similar to what we do at the living room, but there's also a clinician on staff over that could be there who could like, if people have more pressing needs that need to be met like on an immediate level they can get referrals they're working with community supports and they could like help them like take those steps how many times have i gotten a call from rabbi oliver that really they just needed someone who has a mudim's number that has a rehab's number that knows of like a mental health clinic that knows of like like how many times have i gotten that phone call where it's like you just need a good like someone who does referrals well right you just need someone who's an expert in referrals right like that's really what I'm not an expert in referrals. We have someone on staff at the living room who is an expert in referrals. Like that person needs to be at Hillel of Rockland on some level for those particular cases. Right. So, you know, and maybe that can grow and people will find that in other communities at other times. If that's something that could launch, that would be very I nice. I would be very excited if that launched. How do I help with that? Um, Actually, I take that back. I have too much work. You have so much you're doing, son. <laughs> Yeah. I want to help, but I don't want to help. If anybody else wants to help, call Shmaya. Right, right. But then to answer your other question that you asked me directly after that, one of the things that I see that's very nice about 
drug addicts and alcoholics and people that need recovery is they're looking for something and they know they're looking for something on some level. Um, people that are engaging in recovery already have a willingness to participate in bettering their lives. Right. And, they, and I don't really see much of that elsewhere. Right. Even, even the people that, even the people that are Makusher to like Rev Moshe Weinberger in the five towns or the KMH guys who are doing thank you Hashem or the people that are really working on themselves through the lens of uh, Torah mitzvot and Hasidus or through, uh, you know, other lenses. They're I, not, can I just they're not dying. Yes. They're not dying to better themselves. They don't have that. Right. So what I, I was saying, this occurred to me, I mean, I've said it before, but it really was very strong in my head the other day that, People don't change till they have to. Yeah. It really, really, now I'm not saying they don't tweak this or tweak that, but like real significant change in our lives happen when we have to change. And the other thing is you need a place that's safe enough to do that change. So those two elements that I find are like that. I mean, you see this interesting, like, I'll go back to Israel for a second, like, nothing was happening with Hamas until they had to. Right. Like, that's. So that's happening inside us. When we get that gift of dis- desperation, which stands for God. G-O-D. By the way, I said gift of desperation for at least 10 years before someone pointed out that that stands for G-O-D. G-O-D. Yeah. Gift of desperation. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Um, so that just shows you how spaced out I am sometimes. But um, what that's the thing. What I find with these guys is like we don't hit like the luckiest people are the addicts because they have this gift of desperation. Yeah. All these other people, I'm curious if real change will even take place. If people aren't desperate enough, I don't know. Yeah. Well, one of the things I like to say is that I try, I like to tell this to guys uh, that come to the living room. Sometimes the addict brain says it would be better if I relapsed and 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 then re-got a level of desperation to face whatever this current issue in my life is because I can't find the willingness to face it right now. And I and if I could like just get that's more desperation, like then I could like overcome whatever this challenge is in my life. Right. Which is a lie that the addict brain often tells an addict, right? And I try to tell them the gift of desperation isn't only the fact that you feel desperate because how many times in your life did you feel desperate and you didn't change right. desperate? The gift of desperation is when it occurs with willingness, right? Mm-hmm. The crossroad of desperation and willingness is where change occurs. You in, uh, in, uh, in the 12 steps and 12 traditions, which is an AA book in the first step, which is, uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, right? So in the text following that statement in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, it talks about how you could raise somebody's bottom, right? How you could like give them more desperation than they're currently feeling through honest sharing of your experience, right? If I could, if, if I could tell you my story and you see where our stories match up and just because my story took a little longer, but you see that that trajectory would be the same for you. Then like I could raise your desperation level, right? That's the theory at least. So I I think that through more vulnerability, more sharing, like 
honest conversations. And that's one of the things I love about this podcast era that we're in. So many people are sharing so honestly all the time. And I, I think people are waking up more on some level. Like my life is dysfunctional. I know it's dysfunctional because I heard this guy on the podcast sharing about his life and like his life was just like mine. And then it got way more dysfunctional. I'm on that same path. How do I get off this ride? Right. You know what I mean? Well, there is this big problem is that, and I, I in the re regular world, like our leaders are very rarely telling us that like I, what I just said about having an incredibly difficult week where I wasn't able to show up. Um, I don't hear that, but you're one of our leaders. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. You are one of our leaders. Right. I, I know. And I don't mean that in like a, in a pandering sense, Joey Rosenfeld, right? He's also right. one of our leaders. Like these are the young people, young ish people who are growing into community leaders. I mean, like when you were coming up, you were looking at like Rav Torsky, right. like he was the leader of, you know, the mental health field. Now, like people are looking at you in, in a similar vein. You know what I mean? More Kiwi. You know what? <laughs> I, I, can I tell you something? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, like to bring up Kiwi and everybody. I love Kiwi. I love Kiwi so much. And Kiwi might be doing more groundbreaking work. Excuse me? But I don't know uh, many people. I shouldn't have said Jeff for that one. No, but I don't know many people who are calling Kiwi in a crisis. I know that they're calling you. Meaning, it might be on a theoretical basis. No such thing as a I know there's no before situation. they figure out it's it's not. That a crisis exactly meaning people are calling you right, right? P the same way they would call Riftorsky you know what I mean like like I don't know if Kiwi's as on the ground well he's one of the leaders I think he's training all the, the no no leaders. right exactly he's a thought leader right. you're an on the ground leader you're like you're in the trenches and people by call the you. way it's so weird <laughs> Totally different. Why they always talk about like um, like helpers as if we're warriors? You know what I mean? Like well, in, in the, the trenches, trenches, front lines. I'm like, I mean, I was sitting on a couch, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, but I hear. It. I always I find it so weird. Why are they? Because it's like almost violent. Yeah, it's like uh, why do they say that? Funny people, thing. people say this to me all the time. Oh, you're in the trenches. Yeah, and I'm like, kind of, because our place is in a basement. Right, my office here is in <laughs> right. the basement. Like, I guess that's why I'm in the trenches. I'm in a living room. I'm in the living room. But that's no right. one's thrown a grenade in, and I right. have to jump on it to save my friends. Right. I'm I mean, sitting on a couch. You know, like, I mean, I just do. I, I mean, I think I'm heroic um, to help people. Yeah. and get a paycheck. Yeah, but I don't know if I'm as heroic as actual trenches, right. and like soldiers. And but there's so many. Like you said to me, like, "You're the general." You're like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, it's a funny thing. Anyway, okay, it is a funny thing. So, um, but I do. Uh, I I I am. I want to like reminisce about like the because the first house we had, we're getting too detailed. It's like too much. You always go You get philosophical, man. I want <laughs> and that's what I do too. We get trapped in there, but and I guess it's good. But you're asking hard hitting questions. I'm asking hard questions. You're asking me sorry, questions. Sorry, you're putting sorry. me in a position where I have to like convey oh, things. I'll back up because I wanted. What are the things that happened? Because the first house that we had was open for two years. You were there, yeah. As far as I know, from the beginning till the end. Not yeah. only the beginning to the end. You were there before there was furniture. Yeah. 
I built the furniture in the house. You built the furniture in the house. Yeah. Uh, Resentfully. Yeah, I remember that. Like, there were no power tools. I'm like, can you please get me a power tool? I'm, like, tired of, like, turning the Ikea furniture right. with the with the Allen key. Like, can you just get, like, an Allen-shaped bit and put it in a drill? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that was> <laughs> <good>. <laughs> Is there room in the budget for a task rabbit? Like what are we doing here? It was it was a pretty hilarious budget that first one. It was like Nasi be like Nasi Monk who started the, the whole program. The founder of all this. Yeah. He um he he would always like, it's coming. It's coming. Right. The drill's coming. It's right. coming. Yeah. It'll be there. It was always there. They eventually, yeah. Eventually got there. Yeah, but you were there in the beginning. I was there for a month before the first client came. And in truth, what was happening in my head was wacky because, I mean, I was trying to show that I'm the leader, but everything I was doing there was theoretical being brought into practice. Yeah. Because I was, I was, I, I had developed in my mind a revolutionary idea to this recovery stuff and just doing it very, very different. Than anybody else has seen it. Now, what I mean by different is that I didn't reinvent everything in the wheel. Still regular sober house, still it, but our whole philosophy was so different. And I had to believe in it enough to actually say this is gonna work. Right. Even though I really didn't know if it would work. Right. But I weirdly had like this super confidence. I'm like, this is gonna work. And then the crazy thing is that you guys would challenge me all the time going, Every it's day. not going to work. <laughs> I can't even begin to tell you how many times we were sitting in a staff meeting and I'm like, Sonny, you cannot do that. That is crazy. No, no, no. We cannot have this happening. Hold on. We have Ellie here. Ellie, does that ever happen to you? <laughs> um, yeah, I would say um, it's pretty frequent. I, I I would say I'm, I'm definitely you know very grateful that uh, – our village gets to stand on the shoulders of all of the mistakes that you guys made in arena. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They got lucky here. Yeah. And the fact that you have Shalom who is like in arena and then also over here, I'm sure that also helps a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Shalom's a very different person than he was then. That was like early on. Yeah. He's a super professional. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, but it no, I'm saying we were doing that, and I actually am curious, coming from, like, the workers, like, what your experience was doing all this stuff. Doing, like... Well, first and foremost, it felt like we were in an experiment. It felt like that. It felt like an experiment. Right. It did not feel like a job as much as it felt like an, ex an experiment, which is, by the way, why I felt like I could say, hey, if... I could get tickets to Fairly Well, the Grateful Dead show in Chicago. I'm going. And you were like, uh, okay, because like the whole thing was an experiment. So maybe like Shemaya could go. Like, I'm not sure if that's part of the job or not, but like, I don't know. And like, maybe Shemaya could go to Chicago. No, right? I thought like, I think Shemaya's going to be way better if he goes to Chicago. Right, right, right. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. Who says giving a staff member a month off is not a great Well, idea. we we did not give me a month off. You what happened was my car broke down in Indiana <laughs> on my way to Chicago. I pushed it into a ditch and hitchhiked to Chicago right. from Indiana. And then at that point, I had to like, after the concerts, I went to Indiana. I hitchhiked back to Indiana, picked up my car, got someone to tow it into Chicago because uh, I didn't know anyone in Indiana. So I needed it back in Chicago. And then 
I stayed at a friend's house in Chicago while I found a mechanic that could fix it in Chicago. And then I drove from Chicago back to New York. And that was about six months. It was about a year and a half. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a very long time. It was a very long time. It was a very long like, time. Like, when is my coming back? I, w- I was supposed to be gone for the weekend. And it was at least three weeks. Right. So what do you think? What, what were the other... So it felt like we were in an experiment, which was exciting and fun. Sometimes feeling unsafe also. Like, right. like where's the floor? Where is the ceiling? And you're like, love. You know what I mean? Like, where's the, <laughs> where's the basement on this thing? Like, right. where do we hit, like, a foundation? Love. You know what I mean? And it was like, okay, you know? And we're, like, running around. And that was a very exciting time. It was very exciting. Um, and by the way, it's really cool because I was adventurous enough in my life where it felt cool to be part of an experiment. Even the feeling of unsafety in an experiment was exciting. Right. I was single. I was young. I was like, I was like a little bit wild. And like that whole like wavy, like presentation of like, yeah, we're figuring it out every day. Right. right. Meanwhile, we're taking in clients. You know what I mean? Right. And we're trying to love them the best that we can to like practice the model, you know, but we're still figuring out the model while we're trying to practice it. It's a lot of fun. There was, there was some wild things. I was thinking even like I would sometimes break my own rules completely. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to mention the name. You remember one guy, he like completely separated himself from the group. And I was like, if you don't want to be part of the group, you have to sleep in the basement. <laughs> right. And he's like, yes, I got my own room. Yeah. And that ended up being by where the plumbing was. Yeah. So he, the whole night he's hearing flush. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> he didn't end up liking it. No. It was very weird. Can you imagine me doing that now? Like, no. It was, no. It was a little bit of shooting from the hip going on. I think you. I think we were constantly trying to meet people where they were at. Right. I think that the idea of loving them meant meeting them where they were at as opposed to having a standard. Of like, this is what loving you means as opposed to like, right? Because there's two ways to love somebody. There's the Rabbi Nachman story where the turkey prince, you could get under the table with somebody. Right. That's one way of loving somebody. Then there's the other way of loving somebody where you're like, and this is what, what I really have learned for myself is like, I assume you're healthy. You know what I mean? Oh, I assume you want to be healthy. I assume you're healthy. I assume you want to be healthy. So I'm holding the standard of your most ideal self to you oftentimes or to a client. You know what I mean? Oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 So I'm trying to love them from that place of where they want to be, not necessarily where they are because they've already shown me a measure of like, they do want that because they are here and they're showing up, you know? So yeah, it was wild, man. It was really wild. It was, it was really wild, but let's, I mean, like the guys from there. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many, it was like about 40, 50 guys over that time or something like that. Through the time, yeah. They're like the most amazing people in the world now. Almost. Yeah, they're fantastic. I love all of them, man. I really do. It's wild. Yeah. It's where my words. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, for me, I love them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And from the metric of like, and they love me. Right. You know what I mean? Like they, like I bump into some of them randomly. Right. And like. They love me and I love them. And from that vantage point, they have community. They have connection. They feel validated. And like for me, that's like massive success. That's like monstrous success. Guys who some of them were 
on the edge of antisocial living, homelessness, you know, like they couldn't go back to their families, people that were like really deprived of any sense of connection to eight years later, like feel love in their life. That's a huge win. It's, it's a wild. huge win. It's wild. Remember, I, I just, I just remembered a couple of times you guys used to say, like, don't say that what it was <laughs> when somebody would say, uh, you really shouldn't take this person. Right. This person is really just screwed up in every program. And Shemaya would be like, you would be like, oh, now he's for sure he's taking, for sure him. taking don't him. tell him that. <laughs> he's for sure. Don't say that to Sonny. Oh, my God. Yeah. By the way, that still has not changed. <laughs> for all those out there listening, if you want to know the secret of how to get somebody into this program. That's that's the way to do it. <laughs> oh my god! Like, don't touch this guy. I'm like, what? That means nobody loves this guy. Right. What are you talking about? Right? If the if the professionals are telling me not to take him, I'm like, how sad is that? Anyway. Well, also, what what a you know what's amazing about you, Sonny? Your unwavering willingness to try loving people, like. Someone says, don't take this guy. You're like, well, who else is going to love them? You know what I mean? I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm going to try to love them. And hopefully that love will Sometimes translate. really hard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, yeah. you got some guys here now that I'm sure it's hard to love them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you, know, you know, they listen to this podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm speaking about particularly Mendy and Nafti. <laughs> You know what I mean? The 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 guys that you've hired. Oh, guys I've hired. Yeah. Oh my gosh! The amazing thing about this place is that everybody's a client. Yeah. The whole place. Well, that's We're by the all way, like doing it together. That's the that's really the crux of like what I've learned in that time period. Both the things I learned in that time period were not things I've learned about other people. They're things you taught me about myself. Right. Both the stories I brought up. Right. Like, who am I? Like, creating this person to be right. Like, okay, that's all about me. And like, you taught me that. That's work that I needed to do, right? And also like, no, Shmaya, you are in charge whether they listen or not. Like, also about me. Like, like I was as much a client as I was, like, one of the, as, as I was staff. You know what I mean? You were loving me. Yeah. You know? Like, that's very powerful, you know? It's super powerful. I think when you work with people, you're forced to change unless you've, like, cut yourself off completely. Yeah, you have to. Maybe that's just the way I see it, and maybe a lot of people are not changing. But I can tell you, the staff here and the staff that was back in arena, it was like, it was, uh, you know, it was difficult. But I almost feel like there was a flow state where we all were together in the changing process. It was never a time where where. Like, oh, we're the staff, you're the guys, so then you guys got to change, and we're kind of staying stagnant. The whole thing was very psychedelic. It was, psychedelic? Yeah, it was very psychedelic. It felt like it was a community. Like, it really felt like a community where we were responsive to each other's needs and desires and wants in this experiment of trying to help people through the lens of love. I, I don't mean to, like, be, like, all hippie-ish about it because you don't like hippies. So. I, <laughs> but That's a secret. People don't know that. Sonny, you're like way more of a hippie than I could ever be. You know what I mean? Yeah, you just so self-involved. You just want a community of people that could love each other enough for them to be able to grow. And you want to create that community. And like like everyone has like equity in the community. And like everyone's yeah, helping everyone. Take a shower. 
Yeah, okay, fine. Some people need yeah, a shower. To okay, a shower. fine, dude. Some people will shower. I can be a hippie. I like deodorant so much. Sometimes I use it three times a day. That's how much I like it. Yeah. Sick. <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that the makings of a hippie is necessarily the not showering. No. And that might be a symptom, not uh not the thing itself. I will tell you this that I when I was nineteen years old. I don't know if I told you this because because you reminded me a tiny bit of myself when you started. When I was 19 years old, I first got I was going for my drug counseling license already, and I was and and I got asked to lecture in front at the first or second NAFISH conference. Right? Okay. So at 19 years old, I'm lecturing with Rabbi uh, Rabbi Doctor Tversky. Yeah, Lou Abrams. Um, Lou Abrams wasn't even on the scene yet. Oh my God! Lou Abrams was before the scene. Shimon Russell, right? Um, uh, Ronnie Greenwald. I mean, we're talking the That's legends. Wild. And they asked me to get up there it, at that big speech. I was like the main speech as a nineteen-year-old with long, flowing hair. Yeah, and I'm getting up there telling them how to do it. That entire speech was about love. Wow. I realized, like, some, you know, Ronnie Greenwald's wife, everyone's, you know, uh, every once in a while she sees me, and she's like, I still remember that speech. Wow. It was all about love and community. I'm like, I can't believe I was talking like that then, but I was, I, that's when I really looked like a hippie. That's what I'm trying to say. That's- yeah, maybe you looked like a hippie, but, you know, you know, hippies grow up, you know what I mean? They do. You don't see many of them in their seventies still looking like hippies, but if they if they really they really besides me, well, you don't look like a hippie, right? You, I'm, I'm a you hippie just inside. you you just ad- adopted the values and implemented them. You right. know what I mean? And that's the cool thing, man. I mean, we really have a community between our village, our place, the living room, and all the other organizations that are within the our place family. We really like people are really getting help. And we really love them and we're really showing up for people and we're really making a difference. And that's like, you know, I've been offered other jobs outside of the living room, making way more money doing similar work, but I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't because it wouldn't be this type of model and I wouldn't be working with young Jewish people, which by the way is like part of it. Like, like I really want to work with Jews. I really, really want to work with Jews. I really want to provide. Now more than ever, for sure. For sure, now more than ever, but also, like, there's only two places in the world that I know of where a Jew could feel like a Jew and feel good about being a Jew without, with nothing, without having to do any action. Just because they exist as a Jew, they could feel good about it. One of those places is Israel. Yeah. The other place is the living room. Those are the only two places I know that that exists. You know what I mean? So, like, how could I walk away from that? You know, it's true. And I have a, I have a very similar experience. It, this was interesting, actually. My experience in graduate school, when, when I was in, they would, there was a lot of criticism that all I wanted to do was work with Jewish people, like because the graduate school is like open up, like, go go to the world and and share the world. And and I was always a little hypocritical because if somebody, you know, if somebody African American wants to work with their community, everybody applauds them. Right. But I can't work with my community because I got to get out there and be more open minded and stuff like that. So I would say, like, listen, I want to help my people, and after I help all my people, I'll become a farmer. Right. 
Right. Like, no, it's kind of mean. You know what my retirement job would be? Like if, if like when I have to retire and I can't do the work anymore, what my like dream job would be? Yeah. Uh, running a coffee shop slash bed and breakfast. That would be my dream job. If I wasn't like helping people, that would be my retirement dream job. Why can't you mix those? What do you mean? I mean, is there anything more loving than a coffee shop bed breakfast? No, there isn't. I don't think so. I think that's like the coziest, most loving environment outside of like the work that I do. But I don't know that I could like full-time operate a bed and breakfast and a coffee shop and like balance those books and like actually do that job and have another full-time job helping people. I think ultimately we will have in our village, one of our plans is to have that. Well, to have that, to have a retreat center, to have a a coffee shop from your lips, to God's ears back down into reality. It's coming. I'm, I'm, there is no reality in my head. Right. No, you're, dreaming. you're, you're, you're We're the dreaming. great dreamer. You're the Ken Kesey of the recovery community. Okay. Listen, this is, <laughs> I, by the way, I'm going to keep throwing these in over here. You know what I mean? Whereas Menachem might be like the Timothy Leary, you're like the Ken Kesey. You know what I mean? Menachem, no, you call him Timothy Leary. Yeah. No, I mean, also we're like very, I mean, whatever. We have like very strong. You also, Menachem does not like psychedelics. I was about to say, we have very strong stances against uh, psychedelics for people in recovery. Is that a general thing? I thought it was a Menachem thing. It's uh, it's also you? It's also me. Yeah, for sure. Mm. I mean, I, I personally have no problem if in the detox process, people are utilizing psychedelics, but like I've seen really distorted things happen to people coming down off of psychedelics. Mm. It's very hard for, I think drug addicts to be in an altered state of consciousness. And then in the discomfort of that altered state of consciousness, have the presence of mind to not want to do other drugs to like ease that experience. I, they're not, I don't think they perceive reality through through their best selves in that moment. They're at their most stripped down and raw place. And if you can accept the disease model of addiction, the disease lives in that most stripped down and vulnerable place, the fear. You know what I mean? And like, if you're like facing unworthiness inside of yourself and you're, and there's fear there and you're not, and you don't have the tools to like pick up the phone, call your sponsor or whatever, or like, or like you can't go to a meeting. You're like actively tripping on drugs. You know what I mean? Like, like your mind is like not in its best self space. Why wouldn't I like do a little bit of like heroin? You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't I go and like do some cocaine or like whatever to like help me like get over the hump so I could continue on with the trip or while I'm coming down, I feel very, maybe a person feels very elastic you know what I mean? They're, right. They feel like they're very stretched. Have you actually seen this happen with people? Because yeah. I'm seeing a lot of the opposite. I've seen people with long-term sobriety go and engage in ayahuasca ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And the first one was okay. And also they were only going to do one. Right? Okay. And the first one was That's okay. silly. No I'm kidding. No, no, no. It, by the way, it is it is silly because no one does one. Right. Right? No one does one. Even the people that aren't drug addicts don't just do one. And for the people who aren't drug addicts, maybe not, maybe doing multiple times, that might be okay for them. You know what I mean? But the drug addicts are always telling themselves, I'm going to do one. Right. Right? And then they do 
three. And after the fourth one, while they're coming down, the person who went through the experience with them. No, but I'm saying, are you, you're talking about I'm, actual people. Actual people. Okay, okay. A, actual people. They're like, do you want a joint? You know what I mean? Like I'm smoking a joint. I, I've, I know people and thinking about one woman in particular right now in this moment who within a year of her doing ayahuasca one time, she did it four times. And, and after like, by the end of that year, she was back to like doing rails of cocaine in a bathroom at a bar and dancing on tabletops with her shirt off. You know what right. I mean? Someone who had 10 or 12 years of sobriety before that, you know, I've seen that happen. Um, and I've also seen, no, I, I'm seeing, I'm seeing fascinating stuff in terms of like healing. I'm not allowed to listen, Trish, our fearless leader. Yeah. Trish is our fearless. Leader. Trish says, I'm not allowed to mess with this stuff. I'm not even talk about it. So I'm going against the rules by talking about the podcast. Right. <laughs> she says, it's illegal. You're not allowed to talk about it. You work for our place. What are you doing? Right. Uh, so I'm not promoting it, um, officially right here. Um, we're talking anecdotally, uh, right? I'm talking anecdotally, and I and I've seen such an interesting word, anecdotally. Ooh, I like that word. I just realized I like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's pleasing to say. It's a nice. It has like a da, 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 pleasing right? sound. <sighs> so irrelevant to say that. Anyway, my experience has been that I've seen people really, really break through areas that I can't see anything else break through. And I don't mean breakthrough as in like walk it down, but like like that feeling of unworthiness. I've seen people literally start feeling worthy afterwards. By the and, way, I've seen that also. Yeah. Just not with drug addicts and alcoholics. So I've seen it with drug addicts and alcoholics, which is I'm I'm not suggesting yeah. it for people, but I'm I'm very I'm I feel like it's a tool that needs to be utilized and well, it's, we're scared of it. I imagine, I mean, I'm not scared of it. Let's right. just say that I've been throwing around psychedelic references. Ken Kesey, I've been throwing that That's shit true. around. I'm not scared of it. You know what I mean? But I will say that like, I don't know of any longitudinal studies or long-term studies with drug addicts and alcoholics taking psychedelics that show favorable results. Right. I also, I don't know if the anecdotal experiences you're talking about are people who have like been having these experiences over the course of time. I, I like the very first time I saw someone who was sober from drugs and alcohol takes like adults, their life improved. But two years later they regressed. What I have found that I could say is that a, a lot of people who do psychedelics while they're in recovery, a lot of them drop out of the 12 steps also and i want to talk that about I that in a second by the way i will also say this that i do know people who took psychedelics in the detox process of recovery or within their first two or three weeks sober while they were in a treatment center um, in other countries not in the united states and that was very profound for them at the beginning of their recovery journey um while they were medic while they were like on like detox medications and while they were like going through that process and they were having trauma therapy at that same time. And with like the awareness that like this experience is like for helping you detox and like build a sense of like self-worth to get going, but this is not something you could continue to do safely. And I have seen some measure of success over there, but not even, even that, like doesn't always translate well. Right. But I want to talk about that point. You've seen people that have walked away from the 12 steps, right? I have seen people walk away from the 12 steps 
And some of them, uh, it's a different discussion in general. It's like I've seen a lot of people walk from the 12 steps, and that's something I want to talk to you. I told you before I want to talk to you about it. But some of them, it seems to have worked out well for them. And some of them, uh, like, I'm like, you need your community. Like, get back to your community. Like, like you need to be, still be working this stuff. So I've seen both of those issues. Um, I haven't seen too many massive negatives in the psychedelic spirit. Now, this is all anecdotal. Like, it's not, I, I, again, there's no good research on this. So, so I want to address both those points and I'm going to address the psychedelic one first. Like, people that walk away from the 12 steps through the lens of like the psychedelic sphere, but then also people who walk away from the 12 steps in general. Mm. Right. So, we'll talk about both of those things. Um, you hit the nail on the head. You see some people. And you say, man, you need your community. You need to get back to the community of the 12 steps. And what I've seen, and this is very anecdotal. I'm not, I'm not an expert at all. I have not done long-term studies. You know what I mean? But what I've seen with people who are drug addicts and alcoholics, the thing that actually drives them towards a relapse or the thing that actually drives them to get have regressions even if it's not a full-blown relapse, is the fact that they think with the psychedelic they could do it alone. Their disease starts talking to them again. Like, you now have the answer. You don't need anything. Which, by the way, it's what heroin told them also. Mm. It's what marijuana told them. It's what crack told them. It's what meth told them. Like, no, you have the thing that works. If you could just keep this up, you could live in isolation successfully. You have the answer. You have the thing that works. Right. And I think that from what I've seen and what I've experienced, providing an answer for people who are so desperately seeking an answer is actually dangerous. I think teaching them that it's okay to not be okay, or teaching them that there's nothing more whole than a broken heart, that's the powerful thing. Like, you don't need to be okay, you don't need to heal fully there's nothing more broken than a whole heart. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the, that's the flip side of that. You're telling me that you want full and complete healing. You want a full heart. That's scary to me. You can't be okay. Yeah, not being I okay. Not for, ev- not, not for everybody. People are not breaking through sometimes, even with the 12 steps, even with good therapy, even with community. Some people are stuck on some old, old, old feelings and emotions and, thoughts that are like so stuck in that they don't seem to move and psychedelics seem to move those things. I, I agree That's that psychedelics, where, I, by the way, I am not disagreeing right. on this point, the power of psychedelics. I am disagreeing with the efficacy of that power in and for drug addicts and alcoholics. Like, right. is that power actually an effective power for this population. I don't think it is. I have not seen it actually play out long-term successfully. I don't even think that I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago who was wanted to try ayahuasca who's in long-term recovery. And I said to them, have you ever actually like, he's telling me he does his prayers and he does his step work and he does this and he does that. Have I said, has any of your prayers ever been God? Can you help me be okay? Not being okay. Or are you still looking for the thing that's going to make you okay? Mm. Like, like 
like, where are you at in your recovery process? Because I think for the wounded child that is the alcoholic, there is a measure of like, to be, to be in pain as okay to be like off the beam for a week, to be in fear for a week and to model that that's okay. We were talking about that, but not even to model it for other people, but to like, be like, no, I'm still, I'm still the leader. I'm just right now in tremendous pain. Mm. I actually can't like, I'm having trouble like diverting my attention to like this thing that's over here. Cause I'm in tremendous pain. I'm just being okay with that. Right. Right. Like that's the big message I think for people in recovery not like let's actually fix you. Gotcha. I I will. I I do want to put this yeah to bed because again we're stuck with a lot of like anecdotal stuff. Anecdotal, not, yeah. Um, I definitely don't think that psychedelics are there to fix you, and I I don't even think that twelve steps are there to fix you or anything's there to fix you. Correct. I think it's there to you know grow bigger shoulders and learn how to deal with life and and life's terms, and that's. You know, the area that I have found, um, which I am keeping my eyes open, keeping an open mind about, is will this be able to break through um, stuff that other modalities cannot? You know, certain certain really bad beliefs about yourself. And that's the thing that I, that I sometimes will uh, – I'm stuck with. And the guys in the house, I, I see them like they get to a point. Um, and I know – for myself, like psychedelics was, uh, you know, it was like a hundred therapy sessions in one for my particular experience. Um, um, whatever for myself, there was breakthroughs that I couldn't get to without, you know, with psychedelic without psychedelics. So that was my own experience. Yeah. I'm not talking about really for addiction necessarily, cause that's not my issue, but although everybody's an addict, different discussion, right. but, um, but um, I think I, I'm just keeping an open mind. I'm looking at it. I am curious. I definitely am. You know, I think it's breaking some very, very strong 12-step rules um, that that are very uncomfortable to mess with. Like, why would you mess with it? Why would you mess with, like, we got a full abstinence model. Why do you mess with it? And I'm I'm kind of hoping that there may be a place where this is not considered drugs. Yeah, I listen. That's where I want to get. To. By the way, you know, I don't know if we should really like get into like the philosophy of like the twelve step model of abstinence and like really get into like also like what's going on in the culture of the twelve step world right now. Like, like, well, I do have one question. There are other divisions going on in the twelve step world right now. There are things that are going on that is like whatever. So I don't know if we like want to like delve into like all of that. It's too niche. I don't know yeah, if I could go there because it's like it's not even useful. It's not even useful. But I've, I'm in my biggest my and you're, you're. I'll ask you some twelve step questions. I mean, my biggest complaint I've gotten from people going into the twelve steps is I'm not interested in joining a cult. Like it feels very culty. So I definitely like it has that feeling. Um, and then I start thinking like, what's so bad about a cult? Right. Like, you know, cults, they have a lot of love. No, a nice cult. No, no, no. (laughs) By the way, by the way, I think you asked me outside before we started the pod, like, what's the deal with people who have like long-term sobriety, like leaving the 12 steps? Right. You had asked me that. Yeah. I'm trying to figure that out. So let's just like highlight the fact that like, if it was a cult, people don't leave. 
you know, it's not a good cause. Like it's a real. If it's a cult, it's a really shitty cult. There's no leader. No one's really asking for your money. No one's really asking you to do anything in particular. There's a lot of suggestions. People walk away all the time. Also, you see people who are like very active in twelve summer. I see guys at the living room all the time who have like very good recovery and like they'll be like, I, I didn't call my sponsor for a week. You know what I mean? Like. No penalty of not calling your sponsor. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I haven't gone to a meeting in a week, in two weeks, three weeks. And like, no one cares. Like, whatever. Come if you want. Don't come if you don't want. Like, so like, you know, I think like, uh, if it's a cult, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's not effective. Okay, let's ask that one question. Then we'll, then we'll start wrapping up. The question is, like I said, like you just said, uh, that I said, you know what I mean? Um, what what is the deal with people with long term recovery leaving? Like, and there's kind of two parts to this question because one is, in some ways, I'm like maybe that's how it should be. Like maybe maybe you know it becomes like recovery light after 20 years of rock and recovery. You know, like maybe there is a next step. Um, and or. No, I don't know. I don't know if there's two sides to it. Let's just say that. Ask like, the question. In, okay. My, in my thought, that doesn't seem so unhealthy. But the twelve steppers that I know, they're like that's bad. Right. So you know what I mean. I think that, again, speaking anecdotally from people I'm watching over, you know, the time that I've been involved in this work, you know who I don't see walking away from twelve steps, mm. people who get sober in their forties or fifties. You know who I do see walking away from like active 12 step life is people who get sober in their twenties. And I think that people have 10, 15 years of recovery and they have kids and their life gets very full. And the thing that's good for them takes a back burner, which we see all the time. Exercise takes a back burner for those people, you know, like a lot of the, like, you know, other good mental health outlets, hobbies, friendships, you know what I mean? Like you look at the average guy who is leading a happy, successful life when he's single or when she's single, maybe she's going to the gym, maybe she's doing yoga, maybe he's going out with his friends three nights a week and doing some measure of like healthy behavior after work or even unhealthy behavior, but he's doing it in a community. This is a very good point. And then, and then they get married. Right. And so it begins to slide down a little bit because like, they're spending more time with their spouse and they're spending less time doing things that are good for them. Maybe they're, they're going to the gym three times a week as opposed to every day. They have kids and now like they're lucky if they get a run in on, on like Sundays, you know what I mean? Or maybe they can still get to the gym and like people's lives, independent lives really start to decline. I think and the- today is Tuesday. I last time I had a run was, uh, 2019. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> No, no, no. It's true. Right. The, the, the more I, I, I've seen it in my own life. When was the last time I went to a concert with my friends? When, when I was working for you, I was going to, uh, 70 concerts a year. Easily, (laughs) easily, easily. I mean, I mean, in, in the, in the 52 weeks in a year. So are you painting this as, as like it could be okay or like, I'm not saying that it's okay. I think that it's just a fact of life. I think it's a fact of life. And guys who get sober older and girls who get so sober older, they have to learn in early recovery how to balance family and recovery. Guy who's 40 or 50 
getting clean or getting sober has to learn how to balance that right away because their life is dependent on it. Guy who's getting sober at 18, 19, 20, 25, they're not learning how to balance marriage and kids against recovery. Mm. They're learning how to balance, you know, my job or going to school or dating or concerts or, you know, whatever against recovery. And, and marriage and kids is a full-time thing. You know, I mean, I do see maybe a lighter side to it is that that maybe marriage and kids are filling a lot of those places that the 12 steps, you know, like it's, they're taking over for sure. And I, and I will tell you this, that a lot of the people I respect in, in this world who got sober young, I'm thinking of a couple people in particular um, right now in this moment, all of them took a break for like five or six years when they got married and had kids of like being very active in recovery. Mm. And now their kids are a little bit older and they are back at it with a fervor that I don't think they had in the years leading up to getting married and stuff like that. Um, I think people come back to it also, which, which, which we wouldn't see as much of, right? Like from your vantage point, like maybe that guy got married and moved to Florida with his wife and kids, right? you know, and, and you saw them and they stopped going to meetings like a year before they moved. Now their kids are six or seven years old. And they're like starting to re-engage in that, but you're here in New York and they're in Florida and you don't have much, much going on. Or like, I know guys who moved to Israel and like whatever, like different people at different stages of their life. I think it's natural, you know, but I very rarely see people who got sober much older go through that dip. Go through that dip. Okay. I totally, I mean, I didn't think about it that way, but now that you say it, it's a hundred percent true in my head. Like I'm, Thinking about about a thousand people right now. And, yeah. Uh, and making, oh, wow, that's a really good point. Okay. My question I ask in every, every podcast if you could stand on top of uh, on top of the roof and shout to the world something, what do you got for us? Anything? Uh, pull down the mic first because I can't see your beautiful mustache. No, you can't see my mustache. <laughs> um, I must ask you this question. I'm saying it wrong. Yeah. Um, if I could say one thing, I would be like, please, you, grow, you got a platform. Please, here, please grow your mustache for the Miloim. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. Um, um, read more f- fiction, read more fiction. I don't care if it's comic books. I don't care if it's stories, read more fiction. Why? I totally agree. But why <laughs> the, the, the lessons of how to be a human and how not to be a human all exist like all of literature all of storytelling exists to like pass on these like very deep messages of like humanity to people like that's why and we've gotten into this world where people have like everything needs to be super clinical like everyone needs to write a book that's like super factual based and whatever but like for all of human history we've been telling stories and i think like that's the thing that opens the heart and like to receive that type of information of how to live well. Dude, I did not see that coming. And I'm so in love with it. And by the way, for years, it was really hard for me because I want to be a deep intellectual to read, to stick strong with my fiction. Yeah. And uh, I even like, there was definitely points where I was like, 
I think I was opening up nonfiction just to tell people I'm also reading nonfiction. You know, like, oh yeah, I'm also you know, I'm tethered soul. Like I, I'm learning how to grow. But I think that what I've learned the most from is, like you say, the storytelling. Yeah. And we and we give a big knock on movies, but movies are another type of storytelling. It's, movies are fantastic. I learned so much from all this. By the way, that's another thing you taught me. I started going to movie theaters by myself. <laughs> You taught me to do that. I did. And I want you to know that the experience of watching a movie has changed from being something to being a background experience. Like many people nowadays are watching movies that are on their phones or they're watching TV and they're also on Instagram or whatever. But like through that, you telling me to go to a movie theater yourself and I started doing that, I've been able to like watch television and watch movies from a place of self-care learning, learning empathy for myself, for characters, for different stories. I've like learned so much through that. And uh I'd also watch more movies if you could do it in a healthy way. Dude, so, I want that on my gravestone. Yeah. He taught people to go to the theater by themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's so deep. Dude, it, that. it changed my life. Yeah. I can't even begin to tell you how many movies I saw. I'm so happy to hear that because I love it. It's been a great experience for me. It's one of the best experiences I get to treat. One of the best solo experiences I get to have in this world is taking myself out on a date to a movie. 100%. <laughs> Hands down. And and you should know that it's been such a bracha that my wife is not interested in some of the same movies as me. And I also don't necessarily have time to like try and figure out with my friends when I'm going to get to a movie with them. So I just buy a solo ticket and I just go to the movie. Sometimes, you know what I mean? I'm like, ah, oh, what it does for me. It's so good. It's okay, so good. Shania, we're going to wrap it up. Yeah. I love having you here. Yeah, this it was nice. It was really, really fun. Got pretty like intense at different points, but I mean, what a wonder to have you. I'm so happy. I can't wait to be invited onto your platform. I mean, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. I want to share my story too. Okay, so come on, by the way. I got a story, baby. Yeah, come on. I forgot my story. I'm already too old to remember my story. It's there somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, I love you, man. Thank you. Thank you for this day that I've been given. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this chance. Thank you for this chance to live anew.